Well, we're going to pray. Um, I was just telling the elders, uh, our neighbor next door, uh, his name was, was Roger Moore, and no, he is not James Bond. And uh, he, um, he died Monday night. He was about 82. It was pretty sudden. Come to find out he was riddled with cancer from one end to the other. And we'd been friends. Great example of a neighbor, what a neighbor looks like. I just was thinking about him this week while I was shoveling snow. <laughs> thinking about him because I used to shovel his driveway on occasion. And, uh, but his family has to put all their estate, his estate together. They've been to the house quite a bit. So I'm going to pray for their fam- the family and, and pray for some others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being with us through this day, this week. Thank you for how you've blessed us. We have snow and it's melting and, and the moisture is so good for the ground. Lord, thank you for preserving us in the midst of all the ice and the snow. Thank you for homes with heaters and uh, all of those good things that we often take for granted. Lord, I pray that you'd be with uh, our, my neighbors, our neighbors, um, the family uh, for Roger Moore as they put his estate together and divide things up and do all those final things, that you would be there, be with them as they grieve and are sad, and we pray that you would be their comfort and uh, console them and hold them in your hands. Lord, we pray for others that we know who've been ailing, and uh, I think of Ben Vizure, we continue to pray for him, and Janet as she cares for him, and watch over him, and be his, be his strength. Lord, bless us as we uh, move into this uh, class today, as we talk about baptism. Lord, help us, and uh, may it be a time of um, encouragement and thoughtfulness and reflection for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, come on in. So we're doing this class, why do you do that? And every so often somebody will ask me to do, uh, add to the class. And so you'll see an addition here in just a minute that we'll pick up next week. Um, which, great thoughts, great questions for us to have. Should help if I turn this on. Alright. How about if I push the right button? Okay, let's do this. All right, basic topics we're covering, worship, church, government, complementarianism, who is John Calvin, catechisms, church membership, we'll get through all of those. Right now we're just in the, the big section on worship, we've been talking about that for the last few weeks. Again, a reminder that uh, there's two main purposes of the class. One is so that those who aren't very familiar with us as Presbyterians and as Heritage um, may not be convinced, but in the end, hopefully we'll walk away and say, wow, most people really do believe the Bible. They really are trying to be faithful to Jesus, and if that's the way they feel, then I will feel like we have succeeded. But also, just a reminder that, um, that we are all the gain from this so that we can practice and think through how to pass this on to others, right? To others who become, come and join our church or come to our church, uh, kids, grandkids, others as well. So it's meant to be something we can pass on. And so, ah, finally, let me go back, let me go back. So this is what we've done. We've, as we think about worship, we've talked about from the very beginning the regular principle of worship. We talked about united vocal prayers, responsive readings, 
the place of our bodies involved in worship. We've talked about creeds, roads, liturgy, and today the most non-controversial subject ever, baptism. Okay? So let me tell you my story, because I this whole thing, we could talk about this academically, we will a little bit, we could talk about this academically, but let me tell you my story, because that's how I'm approaching this, okay? Um, we were raised in Moore, Oklahoma, Anna and I were, and uh, she was a good Baptist, and I was not a good anything. And she married me anyway. We went in the military, I was converted when we were stationed in Turkey, um, and was baptized in the Mediterranean Sea, just south of Tarsus. If you go look at a Bible map for Tarsus and go down, you'll see where I was baptized. I'm waving at everybody in their Bible maps, you know. And we got involved in the Church of Christ. And the Church of Christ, uh, and I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but the Church of Christ is a very, very edgy aspect to them. Um, they, um, everything is about salvation. Everything. If you deviate from the path of whatever the path is, you've lost your salvation. And so the way that they, we would talk about baptism is that you would have to be baptized their way or you're not saved. It has to be immersion. It has to be, um, it has to be for the forgiveness of your sins. It has to be in all these different aspects. And you have to continue to walk this path. At any moment, you could, be, you could deviate. So I'll give you an example. Probably none of the churches of Christ in Edmond, Oklahoma, or Oklahoma City, very few of them are in fellowship with one another because each one is right. And the others are not quite right, so therefore they're wrong. I mean, it's just that intense, okay? Uh, if you have a, some churches, if you have an age-segregated Sunday school, that's forbidden. You can't have an age-segregated Sunday school. You... Um, if you have, if you support a mission, if you support um, a missions agency of some kind, that's forbidden. You can't do that. It depends on the church, right? So I think about our friends down at Memorial Church of Christ. They are the bad guys of most of the churches of Christ in town because they're big. They actually have a piano sitting in their church somewhere. Uh, all those things. It's horrible, you know. But that's how they would do things. And so uh, that's my background. Part of my background is uh, cutting my Christian baby teeth in the Church of Christ. We were in the Church of Christ for many, many years. In fact, while I was in the Air Force, on the side, I was a bivocational minister. I actually was a Church of Christ preacher for about five years. And that means then that you preach against everything you disagree with. You rarely preach for something. You always preach against something. And so I preached many, 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 many sermons against what I'm going to talk about today in reference to baptism, infant baptism, and so forth. And I know from the inside all those different arguments, okay, I said those things. That's my story. And so the story, as it goes on, was a, mo- was a period of moments that I began to realize other things when it came to baptism, for example. So it was... Um, had to do with baptism and it had to do with R.C. Sproul and a couple of others. But anyways, there was a huge shift, but it happened while I was a Church of Christ minister preaching, you have to be baptized this way to be saved. And it was in that time, doubts started coming as I'm reading Scripture. Now, you may not agree with me in the end, and that's okay. Again, as I pointed out at the beginning, it's not necessarily that you agree with me, but that you at least walk away and say, hey, you know, at least 
They want to believe the Bible. They're trying to be faithful to the Scripture and faithful to Jesus. That's more important to me than you necessarily agree with me. Does that make sense? Okay, so a lot of this is my story. This is some of, a lot of the things that, that came to me while I was in a church, as a Church of Christ minister and, um, and what caused me to change and move. So, here we go. So, let's do this. We're going to talk about, I'm going to break this down to four parts. This keeps it easy for me. Conception, quantity, quality, and covenant. Okay, so that's how we're going to break it down. So the conception part should be pretty easy for everybody to know. We all understand it, I'm sure, but let's go ahead and walk through Scripture. So uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'm hearing angels. So Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's meeting His disciples. By the way, in Matthew, this is... He's going to meet them on a mountain. This is the fifth mountain in Matthew. It's very interesting how mountains play crucial roles in Matthew. And so as Jesus is raised from the dead, he's meeting with his disciples. Um, verse 16, uh, on, uh, um, now the 11 uh, disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, etc. And Jesus said to them, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's interesting that Christ commissioning His disciples says part of making disciples is baptizing them and teaching them. Right. So there's the conception. There's no debate over that. That's extremely important. By the way, Keep the formula, he says, in mind that he says with all authority. Okay, and I'll explain that in a minute. So the next passage, Acts 2, verses 38 and 39. Okay, so let's just go there. This is the first Pentecost after Christ's resurrection and ascension. And we're going to come back to Acts 2. Uh, one and two in just a little bit, so you might want to stick a piece of paper in there or something. But after Peter has preached this gospel sermon, um, down at verse 37, the crowd is pricked to the heart, cut to the heart, and they say, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, to everyone whom the Lord will call, uh, our God calls to Himself. So notice again, as soon as they ask, what do we do? G- Peter is basically reiterating what Jesus had commanded at the end of Matthew. Well, you need to be baptized, right? Now I do want to say this as a side note. Notice he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, right? Do you see that there? I've made a case and I did it a sermon That's by the authority of Jesus, at the command of Jesus. Be baptized at the command of Jesus. How did Jesus command baptism? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So don't pit the book of Acts against what Jesus said at the end of Matthew. Every time it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord, it's baptized at Jesus' command as Jesus commanded. Alright? So Trinitarian baptism is the only 
Christian baptism because Jesus gave that as the guideline. Does that make sense? And so you'll notice some groups, and I used to rub shoulders with them for a while, but some groups will baptize only in the name of Jesus, and when you push them far enough, it's because they deny the Trinity. That's not Christian baptism. That's Unitarian baptism. Does that make sense? Okay. And so, actually, in over the 20 years that I've been a Presbyterian minister, I've had uh, two people who were united, specific version of United Pentecostals that deny the Trinity. And when we talked about baptism, they finally realized, oh, I was never baptized. Even though they were baptized in the name of Jesus only, they were never given a Christian baptism. And in both situations, they both, and you got to see one of them, right? Both times they said, I want to do what Jesus says. And they did it right. Awesome. There you go. All right. So I'm just making the case, just make, pointing out what we already know, the conception, right? This, so baptism is extremely important. So let's go to Galatians chapter 3. And you can stop me anywhere and ask me questions, by the way. If you don't, I'll just keep on. So Galatians 3. Notice again how Paul puts this uh, down in verses 26 through uh, thir- uh, 29. So uh, Galatians 3, did I say 6? Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Again, just... The fact that the baptism is important and it's actually commanded. So there's no debate, right? Nobody has a debate. Just, just, I'm just laying some groundwork here. But everybody sees that. And in some way, it does identify you with Christ. You know what Paul says in verse 26 and 27, right? It does identify you with Christ. It is the mark. When we were in Turkey and we were baptizing Turks, you have to be careful doing that. But we would baptize Turks. Muslims would sit up along the bank and watch us. And every one of the Turks that was being baptized knew that at that moment they were a marked person. And sure enough, a few of them actually got arrested sometime after that. Okay? I mean, it identifies you with Christ. It says, this one belongs to Jesus in the face of all these who don't belong to Jesus. Okay? Extremely important. All of that is just basic groundwork. We all know it. And so I love the way that F.F. Bruce put it in his commentary on the book of Acts when he said, the idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not entertained in the New Testament. And so for someone to say, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, well, have you been baptized? Well, no, I don't, want to, I don't need to do that. Brings the first statement into question. It has to. Because Jesus commanded it. If nothing else, Jesus commanded it. Oh, I don't want to do everything Jesus commands. I don't want to do what He said. That's a problem. You get it? So the New Testament does not entertain the idea of the possibility even of an unbaptized Christian. So there's the conception. Just laying that groundwork. Does anybody have any questions? Anything up to this point? While I drink some water? Yes.
Yes. And you know, one way to find out is look at Acts 19. And when Paul comes to a group of disciples, they're called disciples, but they're in Ephesus, and he starts talking about the Holy Spirit, and they go, Holy who? He says, Oh, what were you baptized into? And they were baptized into John's baptism. It's not a baptism. And so he says, You need to be baptized. Which is then where they hear about the Holy Spirit, right? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, right. No, they weren't. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, Moose. baptized yep because it's yeah good all right anybody else all right let's move on so let's talk then about quantity here's where it all gets wet <laughs> all right so uh, just to look at the time we don't have to go read all of acts one and two but acts chapter one you have Jesus getting ready to ascend into heaven, and he says in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, Stay here in Jerusalem. Remember what John said, that, uh, you, will be ba- or, that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So you know chapter 2 is about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? You've already been told that in chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. When you get to Acts chapter 2... There's one word used for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what hit me when I was in the Church of Christ, and I was going, wait a minute, right? This just, I mean, it just threw me into loops. There's a one word used three times for the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So if you happen to be in Acts chapter 2, I'll tell you the verses. Twice, it's when he's quoting Joel. So Acts chapter 2. Uh, in verse 17 and in verse 18. What's the word used? Yes, what is it? Say it. Pour. I'll pour out my Holy Spirit upon you. I'll pour out my Holy Spirit upon you. And then you come again to the end of the sermon uh, at verse 33. Towards the, Yeah, verse 33. Somebody read verse 33. He 
poured this out, okay? So the Holy Spirit has been poured out. He poured this out. And so the point that came to me, the thought that came to me, I'd always been taught and always told that baptizo always means and only means immersion. I'm going to take you to another place in just a minute to validate this. But just Acts 1 and 2 already caught me up short. It doesn't have to mean what we consider immersion, okay, or submersion, going, you know, going down into the water. Because here you have an example. Here's baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay? Here's a second one. Go to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, and I don't want to hammer this too much. I'm just giving you my, how, what, what came to me while I was in the, the Church of Christ preacher. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10. Most of our translations translate it one way. So I'm going to show you the Greek. Verse 10. But deal only, uh, uh, but these outer ceremonies deal only with food and drink and various washings, various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of redemption. And that Greek word, that Greek phrase, various washings, is called diaphoros baptismois. Okay? And so the writer of Hebrews is talking about the various kinds of washings that happen in the Old Testament. In fact, if you go on and read down to verse 11 through 14 and 18 through 22, he's including the sprinkling with the atonement blood on on the Yom Kippur, as well as other sloshings sloshings with water and hyssop, okay? And so the form, there it is, various baptisms. What kind of bat? what are you talking about, writer of Hebrews? I'm talking about all these various washings, symbolic sprinklings and pourings and sloshings that happened in the Old Testament. He's calling them various baptisms. Those two passages hit me and was like, wait a minute. I thought it always and only meant a certain amount of water in a certain form, but it doesn't always and only mean that. Okay, The word in itself may give you that impression, but then you have to read that word in its context. Kind of like if I say, hey man, it's cool. Now what does the word cool mean? It could be temperature. It could be like really neat. It depends on what? The context, right? So... You have to look at the context and you begin to realize that baptizo does not necessarily and only and always mean immersion. Okay? So, you know, that, you know uh, this one. This is Jesus' baptism. And it talks about Jesus going down into the water and then stepping up out of the water. Okay? And usually that gets... And all the way through Acts, this, this happens a lot through Acts as well. And the sometimes... That gets uh, used as saying, see, that was immersion. And that's possible. I'm not denying that it could be. But going down into the water and coming up out of the water only means, at, the, at, at its bare minimum, means what? Water's at the lowest level. He stepped into the water and he walked out of the water onto the bank. I mean, you can't make a case one way or the other. I'm going to give you another example. walking yeah okay so look at look at um, Acts chapter 9 and verse 18 
This is Paul's baptism. Just like I, I think the mode of immersion is not necessarily being described in Matthew and other places in Acts, because I think that actually pushes the case too far. So look at Acts chapter 9, verse 18. This is Paul's baptism. Somebody read verse 18. He arose and was baptized. It doesn't tell us the mode. It just said he stood up and was baptized. Does that mean he was poured on and sprinkled? It doesn't say. You see, you get what I'm trying to get across. We can sometimes stretch the case too far beyond what's given to us. Okay? And so it just doesn't seem to be anything that mandates automatically that there was immersion in every one of those cases. Or if it was, then you'd have to say that one mandates pouring. Because he arose and was baptized right there in town in that house. And so you could go on to Acts 16, the Philippian jailer. He's in a jail, or the, the Paul and Silas are in the jail. The jailer comes in. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved, you and your household. And the, he washed their wounds, and then he and his family were baptized. Well, what form? It doesn't say, right? It doesn't give you any indication of how much water is used. Okay, so here's another example. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. Sorry, I'm going kind of quick just because of time. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. For I do not want you to be unawares, brothers, or unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized with, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You can make maybe a case of immersion there because they're surrounded in some way, and yet at the same time they didn't go, it wasn't a, though he calls it a baptism, it wasn't a, just a downright sinking into water in some way, okay? It was very symbolic with clouds and with water around them and so forth. The point I'm trying to get across is what hit me was that baptizo does not always mean automatically, all the time, in every place, what we normally call immersion or submersion, okay? In fact, I mean, just the baptism of the Holy Spirit, pouring out water is just as picturesque of a salvific event of God, Pentecost, as is maybe being immersed in water as the grave of Christ and so forth. You can make all kinds of cases, but those were the things that were coming to me while I was a Church Christ minister and had given me question marks and gave, gave me doubts and got me starting to question and thinking, okay? So I find it interesting, just, as, just for history's sake, um, in an early 2nd uh, century document called the Didache, which was uh, towards the, either written right at the end of the 1st century or written right at the very beginning of the 2nd century. It's a, I guess you could say it's an early book of church order, if that really rings your bell or not. But as it's talking about baptism, I find it interesting that there's no, there's no qualms in mentioning various forms of baptism. Concerning baptism, baptize this way. Have first, having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in living water. Living water is running water. But if you don't have living water, baptize in other water. If you don't, which I've done that, by the way. I baptized in a stock pond once. Oh, well. 
And if you can't, cannot uh, in cold, then in warm. But if you have not either, then pour out water thrice upon the head into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not authoritative. This is not Scripture. It's just interesting that historically, there's no, there's no surprise of baptizing in another way other than immersion. Does that make sense? I mean, you would think that early on, there'd be like, well, this... You know, this is only one way. It's just this way and no other. Right? But instead, it's like, no, there's different ways you do this, and it all fits. Does that make sense? That's all the case I'm making. Okay. So that was quantity. There's more I could say. I'm giving you a thumbnail sketch. But any questions about quantity? Could be, yeah. I mean, and, and there's no, uh, yeah, and there's no denying on my part that you may have actually see some immersions going on. There's nothing wrong, so we're not against any of that. Okay, it's just that it's not the only. We would say it's not the only way, and coming from Scripture, say it's not the only form to be used that has to be used. Were you going to say something, Kim? No, no. Right, right, yeah, yes. Uh I will leave that for Wes because he's going to preach on that today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will say, I will say this though that there, Peter is really emphasizing that that baptism, just like all of our baptisms, is a sign of judgment and gospel. It cut off the whole world outside, and it set apart those who were God. And that's exactly what you see going on baptism. That's really part of what Peter's after. But I'll leave the rest of that for Wes. If he can fix up the rest of the pieces. Good call. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good call. Good call. I was hoping somebody would bring up First Peter 3. Just so I could throw, throw him in there. Yes. Yeah, well, he was sinless, but I'm, yeah. I mean, so there's also, you've got to think of historical redemptive. So with his death and resurrection comes now the new moment. And he, as the greater Moses, the greater than Moses, says, now this is how it will be done from this day forward. And so they were apparently, in the story in Acts especially, you realize it's probably because they hung out with Apollos, who only knew the baptism of John, until Aguila and Priscilla taught him the way of God more clearly, I think is the phrase. 
And then you come to Acts 19, and here were some who had actually been persuaded by Apollos to do it that way originally. And so, yeah. So they were not rebaptized, they were now baptized properly. Yeah. Okay? Ah, yeah, interesting. Okay. <laughs> Moving right along, thank you, Edward. <laughs> Let's talk about quality. Yes, John. When I was in the Church of Christ, yeah, all I can say for me is when I was in the Church of Christ, it had to be full immersion. And I was baptizing Gal one time, and the top of her head would not go under that water. I had to put her in a second time and make sure I got her all the way in. And so, but that's, that was the Church of Christ. I don't know about, you know, you ask others. That's the way it was for us. I'm not saying anything about anybody else. All right, let's talk about quality for a moment, okay? So let's, um, let's go quickly to Acts or Titus chapter 3. Now, I, I know historically some have said that this has nothing to do with baptism, but historically it has always been viewed as talking about baptism. And so let me make a little case for you here. So at, uh, Titus 3... Verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so that phrase, the washing of regeneration, so you'll even hear it like when we go through the Heidelberg Catechism, they actually refer to this phrase when they're talking about baptism. Okay? John Calvin thought this was about baptism. It's just historically always been thought of as baptism, and there's a, there's, there's a reason for it. Now we're talking about quality here. Okay? There's a reason for this. Extremely important to help us. Notice that the baptism, if it is baptism, notice it has actually an emphasis. It's the washing of regeneration. The only other time in the New Testament the word regeneration is ever used. In the Greek, the only other time in the New Testament this Greek word is ever used is in Matthew 19, verse 28, when Jesus tells the disciples, now the, New, the English Standard Version uses translates it differently, but but the Greek word is still there. He says to the disciples, he says, in the regeneration, you will sit on 12 thrones judging all the peoples, the people of Israel, etc. In the regeneration. Regeneration in the New Testament, the word is referring to the new heavens and new earth. Right? Kingdom come. It's what we've been praying for. And so baptism is, whatever else is going on, it is saying you belong to the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. You, by the grace of God, are now part of the new heavens and new earth in a sense, okay? In a great sense. So it's 
pushing you forward. That baptism is actually focusing you towards the regeneration. Okay? We saw when we read Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29, where Paul says that we are clothed with Christ in baptism, or, or it's another way of saying we're united to Christ, that there is a close similarity, or, or a solidarity, not similarity, solidarity, okay? And so our baptism says we are Christ. We belong to the new heavens and new earth. We are Christ. We're clothed with Christ. We're identified with Christ. And thus, as he goes on to say, that makes us then, or this, all of this makes us then, the offspring of Abraham, to whom the promises belong. More there, someday in the future. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2, that baptism under the cloud and, and, and uh, through the sea cut off Israel from its slavery, Right? It distinguished them from slavery and distinguished them from serve, that they had once served pagan gods. It, it was a line in the sand. It set them apart. Right? This is now a new season in your life from this day forward. Does that make sense? Okay? And so you'll often hear me at baptisms talk about how this baptism says this person or this child no longer belongs to John Dewey, to Buddha, to Krishna, to Muhammad, or even to the president, but belongs to Jesus. Okay, And I love the way our Book of Church Order puts it. I don't know if you're going to quote this today, but if you're not, I'm quoting it now. Our Book of Church Order puts it this way, thinking of these passages and others. Uh, those who are baptized are solemnly received into the bosom of the visible church, distinguished from the world, and them that are without. So that baptism marks us as distinguished from the world and them that are without, and united with believers, and that all who are baptized in the name of the Father, or in the name of Christ, do renounce, and by their baptism are bound to fight against the devil, the world, and the flesh. If you think about those passages just to begin with us, Quality, and you realize why the, our book of church order puts it that way. But I love the way they, they state it. Our baptism, we, when you hear sometimes say, remember your baptism, part of that means, remember, we are in the fight against the devil, the flesh, and the world. That's also what that means. Okay? And so just as, just as you think about the quality of baptism, what it actually distinguishes. Um, and this will lead us into the next one. Here, but any questions before we go on? You have no idea why I brought all of that up, did you? Do you? I want you to think about your baptism. Okay? And I want you to think about the significance of what it means being someone who is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It means you're distinguished from the world and those are without. You are united with fellow believers and you are bound to fight against the devil, the flesh, and the world. You're part of the new heavens and new earth. You're marked out as part of the new heavens and new earth. You're clothed with Christ and thus an offspring of Abraham. And you're distinguished from the, your old slaveries and your old serving of pagan gods, etc. It's an important moment. Okay. Yes. 
I remember Matthew Henry used to tell, tell the story about his dad, Philip Henry. would say, when I was being an honorary kid, I'm paraphrasing. When I was being an honorary kid, my daddy, Philip, would grab me up by my baptism. <laughs> Mike. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, okay. So notice, just as a quick reminder again, notice that, notice the connection with baptism and being the offspring of Abraham. That's going to be important when we get into the next section here in just a minute. And also, the marking out as distinguished from the world and those who are without and united with the believers and so forth. Okay? And so, this, I, honestly, I came to this while I was in the church crisis. One of the reasons we had to leave. Okay, um, what I'm about to tell you, and it, it was extremely important because I began to see this bigger aspect of baptism. That baptism was not about me and my faith, or about me and my uh, holiness, or godliness, or Christianness, or any of those things. It was bigger than that. It was about the grace of God poured out upon us, or put upon us. It was a picture of all of that. But I also began to realize a covenantal aspect to Christian baptism which means huge things for us and for our families. Okay, that's what I came to. So, thinking about that, seeing how Paul brings in baptism and then he he ties it in with Abraham and he ties it into the promise that God gave Abraham. So, go back to Genesis 17. You don't even have to go there. You know it in your mind. What was the visible symbol that God gave Abraham, Abraham that said... I have made a covenant with you that in you and in your offspring all the nations of the earth we bless. What was the sign? He put a sign in his flesh. What was it? Circumcision was a physical sign. It was a mark that said, here are those who are distinguished from unbelievers and those outside and belong to the believers. Here are those who are bound to fight against the devil, the flesh, and the world. Here are those through whom my promise will come, even though they don't often deserve it at all. Right? Circumcision. That's physical sign and symbol. Alright? And so I find it interesting that when God talks to Abraham about this sign, He says, look, this will be the sign that says that I'm your God and I'm the God of your descendants after you. That's great news. And so he has them all circumcised. Very interesting. Abraham is 99 years old. I just cringe when I read that passage. All the way down to the eight-day-old. Right? All the way through. Okay? They all now belong. And so, it's interesting language. I'll be your God and the God of your children after you. That whole concept of this covenantal aspect tied up with this sign. So when you get to Acts 2, verses 38 and 39... It's no surprise in Acts 2, that first sermon after Pentecost, when they say, what must we do? He says, believe, uh, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, so that you may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
and the promises to you, to your offspring, and to those to whom the Lord will call. Right? There's that language. You, your children, and to those whom the Lord will call. And you see it again when you get to Acts 16. When the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And what is Paul's answer? Think about it. His answer comes from Genesis 17. What's his answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your household. How could he make that promise? Because he can make the promise based on what God has said. Not based on what he sees necessarily, but based upon what God has said. Okay? And so that Old Testament language flows into the New Testament. And so again, Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 20. Did I say 36? 26 through I need an editor. 26 through 29, where Paul makes that connection with baptism and being the offspring of Abraham. Okay? And so when we baptize, let me say this, when we baptize based upon Scripture, when we baptize adults or children, we do not base guaranteeing and knowing that they believe. Right, I can't tell you how many people I baptized, adults I baptized, that turned around and walked off and left the faith at some point. Right? You don't baptize based upon their faith. You baptize for the adults, you baptize on their profession of faith, maybe. But you baptize because Jesus commands it, number one. And you baptize based upon the promise of God. That if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And God has given us this sign to mark you out as belonging to Him, so I baptize you for that reason. And that's how we baptize. We don't baptize our babies saying that these are the saved any more than Abraham circumcised Isaac and Ishmael saying, oh, you're the saved. Because what happened in that context? One of them walked away. But the promise was there. And so in that moment, when he circumcised his sons and one of them walked away, that mark now will stand in, in judgment against him on that day. You had the opportunity like none of the other Middle Easterners had. You had the opportunity and you squandered it. I could just imagine that day. Right? And so it was the same in baptism. We baptize based upon the promise of God. We, base, we baptize for the, because of the command of Jesus. We do this we're not saying these are the saved. We're saying these are the marked out as those who are bound to fight against the devil, the flesh, and the world. Those who are now the offspring of Abraham. Those who are now part of the new heavens and new earth. That's their focus. That's their long-term aim. You know, all those things. And so we baptize for those reasons. I say all that to say, so we're going to look at two passages before we end here. Ephesians chapter 6 Verses 1 through 3, I want you to notice the language Paul uses. The language is the language he would use for somebody inside the church. And he's talking to children. Okay? Like in 1 Corinthians 7, he tells Christian widows if you're going to marry, marry in the Lord. He's talking to Christian women in the church. When you marry, marry a fellow Christian. Notice what uh, Paul says to to children in the 
we would say, are in the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land, etc. He goes on to talk about fathers don't provoke your children. But it's interesting that if they're not part of the covenant, there's no authority over them to tell them you need to obey your parents in the Lord because this is what pleases God. Well, I'm not a Christian. I'm a pagan. I don't, why do I care about pleasing God? Right? But here he's assuming that they're in the church. This matters to them. They're in the Lord. They're to obey their parents in the Lord. It's the same thing when you get to Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Why does it matter to kids if it pleases the Lord? Because those kids he's writing to are in the covenant. They're in the church. It matters to them. They're marked out as belonging to the Lord. So who do they want to please? The one who has marked them. So it's an assumption that if that's the case, which is what I came to the conclusion of, is that baptism is following that same line of circumcision and marking us out as the offspring of Abraham and all those things, that it fits very well when you realize how Paul starts talking to children. Oh, they belong. They've been marked out as belonging. He has the authority to say this to them. Does that make sense? I see some squinty eyes. Does that make sense? So this is the conclusion I came to. I'm telling you, it was... Not a happy moment. <laughs> but it was a happy moment. And we were so convinced that we had, at that time, we only had, two, we had our two girls that uh, we had to leave the Church of Christ for, not because they, yeah, because they were going to run us out and excommunicate us if we didn't. And then we ended up in a PCA church and we had our children baptized pretty quickly after being there. Fully convinced. Uh, I don't know if it convinces you. It may not convince you, and that's okay. I didn't try to convince you. I'm just showing you my story and showing you biblically where we came to this, okay, and how we come to this, and why this is extremely important. Okay. Any questions? Right, right. I mean, they're just doing what Jesus said. Right? Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. So they're doing what Jesus says. And they know, they know that it says these people belong. Would you agree? Randy, would you agree? They profess to belong. And so this mark marks them out as belonging. Right? And so that's when they become members of the church and so forth. Yes. That's a great question. Um, there's all kinds of explanations as to the men, the males only, but it has to do with uh, probably procreation and um, the, yeah, the sign of the covenant through the means of procreation. I don't want to get all the gory details, but that, that aspect and also the sense of uh, the leadership in the family is going to be, end up being the males. 
But then when you come to the New Testament, so when Peter begins to quote Joel, you see this universalizing. Male, female, maidservants, manservants, and so then that's where uh, the covenant sign spreads out, which fits in in some other aspects of the gospel as well, where it spreads out certain things. But it becomes universal in that sense. Does that answer your question? Okay, yeah. Yes, John. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, right. Yes, and, and it's a covenant that God made that we didn't make. Yeah, this is your promise. That's what that was. That's what I said. We baptized based on the promise of God. This is your promise, and so I cry out to you for these kids and so forth. Yeah, and 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 again, just to emphasize, we don't believe the baptism in and of itself that it actually saves and washes away original sin, just listen to the baptism vows when we do them for kids. Do you believe that your children are in the need of Jesus just like you are? Yes. Right? So it's still the same thing. But what do you do now? Now I can tell my kids just like I would tell you. Right? So I do this with you and I would do it and I do it with my kids. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We never don't say that. We always say that. You need to trust Jesus. You need to put your faith in Jesus. We say that for adults, we say that for kids. We always say that. So we're never not telling them the gospel. If we stop telling anyone the gospel, we're ooh, bad. Right? Anybody else? I know you've got lots of questions and you're just not wanting to inundate me. Mm-hmm. 
I'm sure he says that often. Yes. But that's a good point. So, Ken, that's a good point. One of the things that, uh, and, um, that I have to say is that you don't have to agree with infant baptism to be a member of this church. I think I forget to tell that to people sometimes. Our, our membership is based upon, like, if you want to call it, the Apostles' Creed Christianity. Okay? And so we have lots of people. We have several people, not lots, but we have several people who don't necessarily agree with infant baptism and are members of the church, you know. And so, um, but this is where we are, and here's why. And here's why we're there, right? And so it's not. A, so here's my other thing. I remember saying this as a. I remember saying this as a Church Christ preacher. Well, the reason why you baptize kids because that's a Roman Catholic hangover, right? Well, it's not a Roman Catholic hangover. We're, we're trying to do what the Bible says, and be faithful. And so, uh, not everybody agrees with us in the end, but in, in all of the details, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a slippery slope. Okay, we need to end. And don't worry, Wes will answer all your other questions <laughs> in his sermon today. I would just let him tread water on his own. No, no. Yeah, that's right. So next week, somebody asked, somebody asked us to talk about tithing and giving a little bit. Why do we do that? And actually, historically, it goes with communion. Ha, ha, ha. There's a little hook to bring you back next week. How in the world does giving go with communion? But anyways, so we're going to talk next week about tithing, giving, and probably communion. We'll start, we'll get into those, and then move on from there. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you love us, that you pour out your grace upon us, you, you drive us deep into your mercy and plunge us into the blood of Christ. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for claiming us to be your own. We thank you for our covenant children, that they too are marked in some way as belonging to you and not belonging to the devil, not belonging to Muhammad or Buddha or... Krishna, not belonging to any of those others, but they belong to you. Help us to be faithful parents in raising our kids. Help us, Lord, as grandparents and as fellow church members as we join together in loving and raising these kids. And I pray for all of us that we will remember our baptism. We will remember how at our baptism we didn't do anything. It was all done to us just as your grace comes to us. That we will remember our baptism that You made a covenant with us, just like You did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That we will remember our baptism. That we are a people, because of Jesus, bound to fight against the devil, the flesh, and the world. And so, Lord, as Your baptized people, we look forward to gathering into the great assembly to worship You. Fill us up. In Jesus' name, Amen.